Spinners of Yarns podcast series two episode. Uh, I'm not sure which episode it'll be. We are with author Ryan Battles, who's had his uh, first novel, Polar Boy, published a year ago, a year and a half ago. That's right. So you're originally from Aberdeen. That's right. Good, good to meet you. Uh, thanks for inviting us on. Yeah, I'm an Aberdeen boy, uh, but who doesn't have an Aberdeen accent anymore? <laughs> uh, left a long time ago. So, but when you when when you when you grew up, when, when did you first become interested in, in in music? Well, I had an older brother, so my brother was six years older than me, and we shared a bedroom. So I was always kind of listening to his stuff. He was a bit of a new romantics guy. Uh, so kind of grew up kind of hearing a bit of that electro influence through his records. Um, and then, yeah, he obviously, you know, got to about, you know, six, well, 17, 18, uh, met a girl, got engaged, got married when he was 19, moved out of the house. I had the bedroom to myself and I could start buying my own records and putting them on. Uh, but yeah, I was probably influenced by some of that, you know, new romantics that he was listening to in those early days. But then from about 15, 16 myself, I started, you know, getting into likes of Talking Heads um, and a bit of the, the as well, kind of. And then any kind of Scottish band, you know, any, you know, Eurythmic, Simple Minds. Um, yeah, they, they became like, you know, some of the influences then. I mean, there was, there was a lot of Scottish bands in the, in the mid-80s. Yeah, Big Country as well. Saw them live several times. Run, run uh, rig, run rig, yeah, huge. I wasn't yeah. into run though. I wasn't <laughs> into them. Uh, but definitely, I mean, like talking heads. You know, as soon as I found out that David Byrne was Scottish as well, yeah, uh, that was it. You know, colours were like nailed to the master talking heads. <laughs> I saw them in 1979 when I was. Where was that? Well, Where was that? It was a, it, 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 there was an Edinburgh Rock Festival, and uh, they were one of the the few that uh, played Van Morrison, The Undertones, uh, Steel Pulse. So you know, it, it was a, a great thing to see. Not that I remember much of Talking Heads, yeah. you know, forty odd years later, but you know, it's a, certainly a, an an influential band. Um, yeah. But the, the coupling alongside music is a fashion angle. So, how did uh, your fashion rotate or mutate? Well, some, folk, some folk would say badly, but <laughs> but uh, you know, running alongside the music at fifteen, sixteen was uh, the football as well. So this is like eighty eight, yeah, nineteen eighty eight. So I was going going along to Pitodri, you know, Aberdeen Football Club, um, you know. And the team was already on the back of all the success of the Fergie years. And there was quite, quite a mob of, you know, Aberdeen supporters and Aberdeen soccer casuals in large numbers. And being younger, you know, we would sit in amongst, in amongst them because it was the best, best atmosphere, best you know, part of the stadium to be in. And when you're in there as a 16-year-old looking at some of the guys that are 20, 22, seeing what clobber they've got, you start to kind of spot, you know, the trainers, the jackets, the labels, and that definitely started rubbing off, you know, on, on me and my mates in that kind of late 
late 80s kind of yeah period trying yeah. to find out where they, where they got all the gear because you know no internet no social media you, you you don't know where to get these things you have to know the right person or talk to the right people and then you follow a little trail don't you asking yeah. more people and they eventually find out that this is the shop or this is the guy that can sort you out with the trainers or a jacket or a jumper or whatever it might be you know so what clothes shops did, did they have up in in aberdeen oh i mean the ones that uh you know still still around is i can't remember what year it opened there was kafka was you know high-end kind of you know uh fashion label brand like your stone islands etc um uh, there was another one around the time called Going Dutch as well, uh, which was like a small, you know, independent. Uh, there was a lot. There was a lot of you know small independent stores uh, bringing you know brands up from the south. Um, and then we would do some trips down to uh, down to Glasgow and Edinburgh as well. I think it was was it Pure? I want to say Pure in is it Pure in Glasgow? I think buy some you clothes had, there. You had crews. Cruise, not pure cruise. Yeah. Pure is in Aberdeen, isn't it? Yeah, cruise. That's the one. Remember that. Yeah. So were you were you then going for the the, the casual look at? In yeah. A, well, yeah. It was all about all about the trainers, the cagoules, the jeans, uh, the Pringles. Um, yeah, it was all that kind of a lot of pastels, wasn't there? Pastel colours, yeah. greys, and um but a lot of it was definitely looking down at what's on your feet making sure kind of working from the feet upwards almost you know got the right yeah. trainer and then working up trainers and cagoule probably one and two <laughs> and everything else in between yeah so when the uh just people don't you know it, it's if if uh 88 was a summer of love mm. club nights up in scotland weren't necessarily playing or weren't playing six hours of house music. It was all mixed up. So you, you'd get a bit of hip hop, you get a bit of soul and you got a bit of house and a bit of techno, you know? So when, which was the first club you went to? Well, that, that time 88, there was like uh, a small, I said house club called fever that was creating a bit of a buzz and a scene in Aberdeen. And that had come out of prior to that it'd been um as you said a bit of an eclectic night of punk and and a bit of bit of house a bit of indie a bit of everything which was like the the band club and the mud club um and some of the djs from there you know moved on to set up the, this fever in about 87 88 um i was about you know 16 trying to get in there but most of the people were probably you know late teens or 20s so about four or five years older than me and my pals so we we only managed to pretty much sneak in i would say because we definitely didn't look 18 at 16 you know boys can look a lot younger um so we got in a few times and it was just yeah it was, it was an amazing experience you know in there but there's lots of other people you know from aberdeen that of that era that you know went to fever all the time that were in their early 20s and really really enjoyed you know that that whole scene then um, so it was, yeah, it was people like Jackie Morrison and uh, Elvis was another one of the original DJs there, Ian, Ian Pritchard, um, who I got to know pretty well over the years. Um, and they kind of yeah ran, ran that with Jim, 
well, they were the DJs, and then there was Jim Rennie and Mike Mike Grave. The Mike, yeah, went on to set up, I think, yeah, sub club with uh, Harry and that in in Glasgow as well after they did Fever. So, yeah, that that was a you know a great scene at the time. The rest of Aberdeen, as you say, was pretty much like Ritzy's nightclubs. You know, guys in suits, thin piano ties, and slip on shoes with you know white socks. There weren't many other. Yeah, nights for that kind of acid house scene in Aberdeen outside of Fever. I mean, there was a lot of, there were probably plenty of, you know, parties, you know, illegal parties, you know, down at the beach and different places after that. But the rest of the clubbing scene was pretty straight laced, you know. But it's kind of like, it was always a, a dark journey down or up to Aberdeen from, from Edinburgh, which is where I was living at that point. So, but you started travelling, going to other nights in in Scotland because it was quite vibrant, you know, eighty nine, ninety. Yeah, I mean, so started exploring. Yeah, going a bit bit south down to the likes of uh, Dundee, then down to Edinburgh, um, over to Glasgow. Uh, there was some well, early nineties. There was some really good um, acid jazz nights in well in Aberdeen at Lemon Tree. There was one called Low Life, Low Life, but another one down in Dundee as well that we started going to, and then yeah, heading over to Glasgow to the likes of the Sub Club and the Arches. That's probably early nineties now, um, and then did a bit bit in Edinburgh uh, as well. I think it was a Citrus Club. Uh, which I think, yeah, Yogi Houghton played at. Andy Weatherall were there for one of his nights as well. Um, and then when I got to about, when I was about 17, 18, I, that's when I started getting the train down to London a lot, actually. And then that's where I started picking up, um, you know, clothes and, and records. And my money started going towards, you know, trips down to to London in my late teens and early early 20s. But the, uh, the, uh, the, you also talked about going to Leeds as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I met, met a girl uh, who was at Leeds University and I was at Aberdeen. <laughs> Bit of a distance between us, but that meant I was going down to Leeds, you know, probably like twice a month. Uh, and obviously Leeds was, was the clubbing capital of Britain, really, at that point. It was back to basics, up your onsen, hard times, vague, foreign exchange. You know, and I was going to all these nights. I mean, it was brilliant. I mean, the city was, you know, alive and buzzing from about 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon. It was kind of, I don't know if you remember back then, but it was a time where you used to go into the clothes shops and they would have, like, DJs playing from 2, 3 in the afternoon, people drinking, they would have dancers in the shop window, pumping the music out. It was, you know, a, a city that just knew how to party. Uh, oh, the Faversham as well, Phil Faversham, the, uh, his nights, which was like the the kind of the, the warm-up to the clubs in Leeds. Um, and then, yeah, Vague. So I was DJing as well up in Aberdeen, running like these small nights and through hanging out in Leeds uh, and going to Vague, I got friends with, uh, became friends with TWA, which is like Nick and Nick and Paul, Chinese with Attitude and Daisy and Havoc, and I thought I've got to get them up to Aberdeen because no one in Aberdeen has seen anything like this. So we flew TWA up to Aberdeen and 
Yeah, no one in Aberdeen has seen anything like it. The taxi drivers that met them at the airport certainly never seen anything like it. <laughs> Dick and Paul were in their netball outfits and their high heels and their big wigs and that. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, I mean, it was cracking times. It was a good laugh. It was good fun. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, spent spent a good two, three years doing the whole Leeds thing. And then, um, and then it, yeah, it was 96 was when I left Aberdeen to go to Dubai. But prior to that, it was London and Leeds mainly. So what what made you want to start DJing? What was the inspiration? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. You know, what was the inspiration? I think it's just the, it's probably been part of that scene. You know, I enjoyed it. You know, I wasn't interested in DJing at first. I just enjoyed you know, being a clubber and, and the music and going to these places that you never knew. It's not like nowadays, you know, you, you kind of got a heads up on what to expect once you get to a venue because you've seen loads of photos or reviews about it. A lot of the times you didn't know what, what the hell you were letting yourself in for, you know, where you were going, what the crowd would be like, what it would look like, how do you get in? You would just get in your Ford Fiesta with your mates and drive you know for three hours to whatever city it is and whatever night it was um so yeah i wasn't wasn't into becoming a you know a dj at the very start it was just the whole you know meeting people atmosphere and, and club nights really and then then i think one of my mates bought a set of decks and we just started hanging out you know, in his his room in his mum and dad's house. <laughs> and then we started buying records to put on his turntables, you know. And uh and then that led to us, you know, putting on a few little nights and then us all just buying more and more records as the nights, you know, did did quite well. Um and that that's kind of how it naturally led into that, really. Did uh, did you then study journalism at university college? I did, yeah. Well, I did, yeah. I did a a degree at Aberdeen, an English degree, and then, then I went into uh, into journalism. So, I uh, yeah applied to get into my local newspaper, and they obviously said no, like about a hundred times. Every time you write a letter, you don't hear from them, or you got rejected. And then I started um, offering to write for them for free uh, uh, football reports. So they would send me out to like some amateur game on a Saturday afternoon, pouring rain, minus five, to get the results and, you know, do some write-ups on some of the uh, the football matches. I did that for about six months or something, filing in my stories, you know, the scores on the phone. And then uh, they said, oh, we've got a train traineeship programme coming up. Do you want to, you know, go for it? I said, yes. And then that's how I eventually got in to work at a local paper, you know, full time, went in there as a news reporter. Um, and then they sent me down to Newcastle. Actually, there's another city I haven't mentioned that I used to go out. Shindig, Scott yeah. Scooby. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it Scott Scooby, Shindig? Yeah. So, yeah, so I was then set in Newcastle for about nine months on a course with Thompson Newspapers. That's where they send all the uh, the trainee journals. Um, so I did my training down there. Lived in Newcastle for about for about nine months, and then came came back to Aberdeen uh, to the local paper. But it was at that time, you know. So this is yeah early nineties, and like the music column in the local newspaper, they just kind of always reported on you know chart music still, you know stuff like U two or Elton John or whoever's like 
you know, big at the time. They had no idea that there was a, a club scene and DJs flying in from America and all over the place and hundreds of people filling the, you know, the clubs in Aberdeen. So I pitched that to the features editor, the newspaper, to write, um, you know, the first club page, uh, club scene in the newspaper. And they said yes. So I started doing a, a weekly column, um, reaching out to all the record shops up and down the country and different DJs, getting them to send up their lists of the week. And then interviewing, you know, various DJs you know, that flew up to Aberdeen or go to the club night, interview them backstage or whatever, um, and then get it printed in the papers. So that was good for like a couple, couple of years. Yeah. Sometimes I look back at the cuttings then, it looks pretty cheesy because, <laughs> you know, you've got a, a sub-editor who's like 50s as straight straight as you can get yeah. reading your, your copy about, you know, a clubbing night. <laughs> and they just kind of, you know, sanitize it, you know, just kind of make it a bit more mainstream. Um, so, yeah, but it was good just to get that in the local paper and make them kind of start to accept that there's a scene going on and people loved it, you know, the clubbers. Yeah. 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 So that, but that then brings you into where, where Cola Boy starts, really. You, you, uh, you I presume you, one of the reasons you moved to Dubai was uh, the tax savings that uh, you would have made? I think, I think I'm the only person that um, went to Dubai and has come back from Dubai with less money than he had than when he went out. Uh, yeah, I know I was bankrupt. You know, I had no money when I came back. Uh, but yeah, I I kind of, yeah, there was not, nothing really left for me in Aberdeen. You know, if you're looking for a, a career in media, like a journalist or something, you've only got two local newspapers, one local radio station, one local TV station, you know. So, and I was, as I said, I was always going up and down, you know, to London and other cities. And I just, that that kind of buzz of, you know, bigger cities or something a bit more exciting than what you've grown up with is what I was looking for was the, the attraction. So, you know, I was over in Dubai on holiday uh, with some uh, family uh, friends. Uh, they let me stay with them for a couple of weeks. When I was over there, interviewed for a job at a local newspaper and, and I got it. So I came back resigned and then then flew out to Dubai you know not quite knowing what I signed up for <laughs> and uh yeah took my records with me and um had a, had a, a fun two years <laughs> I mean obviously Dubai's got quite strict laws uh how did you get around them <laughs> yeah. yeah Dubai is uh was a massive culture shock so yeah, when, I, when I left 96, I'll never forget, there's a the front cover of Mix Mag, Mag magazine. And on the front cover of Mix Mag magazine in, in 1996, it says, 1996, everything went nuclear. And when you talk to, you know, DJs of that year, 1996, the, you know, everyone says that was the, the biggest year it was when all the super clubs, super DJs, everything was like at the 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 top, you know, was it? Um, so there was this kind of sense that you could do anything. You know, you were running club nights, you were DJing, you were partying. Everyone in the UK, it was Britpop as well. I think, you know, Labour had just come in or were coming in, you know, during this 96, 97 period. Um, it was Cool Britannia. So everyone was on this high. 
So going to London in Dubai, it was like, it felt like it was all to play for because none of it was established there. It was all pretty uh, tourist, you know, led, but in a, with a small T as in it was like a handful of hotels, but they only had like, um, you know, discos that were just playing chart commercial kind of music. There was no scene. There's no fashion scene. There's no club scene. There's no music scene. It was just very transient tourism, people there for a few days and nights, nice hotels with a, a little kind of basement, you know, nightclub. Um, and that was it. So, you know, I'd gone over there with my records, met another guy uh, from Birmingham who had records and decks over there. Uh, and we thought we'd start, you know, hosting some some little parties. And and that's what we did. And then, as you know, you do one party, attracts more people for the second party, as word goes around. Then the third party has more people. And we kept moving from, uh, you know, space to space, started off in some apartments and then moved out into the desert and then, you know, villa parties as well. Yeah, and we always had to... Always had to keep one step ahead of the the local police, as you're saying, because over in Dubai, there's a long list of things that are illegal. So it's illegal to have any booze in your premises if you don't have a license. Um, it's illegal, you know, for you know a guy and a girl to be in the same room overnight past midnight unless they're married. So you're not allowed to have you know sex outside of ma- outside of marriage. Um, it's illegal to be gay over there as well. It's illegal to kind of put on on parties. You know, you've got to have licenses for that as well. Obviously, it's illegal um, to have drugs, but the you know the laws over there as well is it's not about just possession. If you're hosting a party, or it's in your premises, or if you're hosting a party, if they find one person with the smallest amount of gear on them, you're going down for it. Even although you're completely clean and you don't have anything on you, you will go down as well. Um, and also, you know, it's a very, yeah, it's a very racist um, country, you know, as well. I live with, you know, guys from Asia and um, one of our best pals is, you know, black American guy. Um, and they would just get refused, you know, at the door of restaurants and just not allowed in. Um, so, you know, the nights that we did, uh, you know, everything was going on. We had, you know, trannies, you know, all dressed up and, you know, shows and just bringing that that best of, you know, Britain's club life into the middle of the desert, but having to be very careful, you know, how we how we go about it. Um, yeah, and it just kind of grew, grew from that. It was still unlicensed um but then i mean i left after two years and some of the guys carried on i think about a year or two after that they they then got a license and it became a licensed gig that moved into the city of dubai uh which some people ran uh, for a bit so how long how long did you stay over in dubai for i was there for two, two years two years yeah and so what what year did you move? Was that 98 you moved back? Yeah, came back in 98, uh, flew straight into London and been here ever since. 
And uh, who who do you who do you write for these days, or who who did you move back and join? Yeah, when I, when I came back, um, I freelanced for all the red tops. So I was at the the Mirror, the Daily Star, the News of the World, um, and then then I actually got a job at um, FT magazines, <laughs> Financial Times magazines of all places. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how how I landed that job, but uh, it was that all out of all those kind of red tops, none of them were ever given full time jobs. It was just freelance work all the time. And FT magazines actually had a full time job coming up, and you know I needed a full time job to pay the rent in London. Couldn't afford London really. Was really struggling. I was actually sleeping. I only knew one person in London when I flew in. This this girl called Rachel. She was staying in a house with five other girls. And they all had jobs. And I asked her if she could put me up for a couple of weeks, uh, rent free. And she asked the other girls, and they said yes. And I ended up staying for five months, <laughs> rent free. And I slept. I slept on a blow up bed in their living room. And every night, you know, they'd be sitting in the living room watching TV, you know, till whenever. And I would have to wait until the last person left before I could uh, blow up my bed and and go to sleep on their living room floor. That was for five months. So yeah, so I took took the full time job at the FT because I just needed yeah salary coming in, um, and then so this is like yeah ninety eight ninety nine or whatever, and then weirdly I was at a all day uh, party called I want to say Jazz on the Green and Parsons Green, and I bumped into one of my old DJ mates uh, out of the blue from from Aberdeen, this guy called Ian Hager who then went on to become the uh, managing director of the Ministry of Sound, but this is well before then, and uh, hadn't seen him for ages, and we just bumped into each other, and uh, then we became flatmates, and then we started putting on. Uh, he introduced me to other guys, and we started doing one of the first tech house nights in London. So this is now ninety nine. So we were going to the likes of um, you know uh, plastic plastic people. Um, you know, for the tech house, deep house nights there. And we started putting on our one in Brixton and Stockwell and, and around London as well. Um, and we did that for about two, three years. It was called Skirmish, um, which was, yeah, yeah, a, a deep tech house night. But that tech house scene in London at the time was good times, you know? Yeah, yeah. The, Kenny, uh... Hawks. Kenny Hawks, we went, yeah, to Plastic People. He was... Uh, Used to go to his nights a lot. Oh, Ken, Ken, Kenny and Harry on a Friday night. Friday or firing. That was a, what, what it was, was called. It, yeah. It, it, it was, was two places. Oh, I think I remember it was it was once, was it not Curtain Road and then Tottenham Court or Charing Court, Cross? Tottenham Court Road was Harry and uh, and Kenny. Uh, Yogi, oh. Yogi always says that he got invited uh, first, but he turned it down. <laughs> As Yogi oh, does, as he turns a lot of things down. Yeah, um, but you know, if uh, it, it, for me for a couple of years, that was the best club night I've been to in in London because it was a great size of a, it, the room was just the right size. Yeah, it wasn't too big and it wasn't too small. And you, uh, just and met, you just met really good people there, and yeah. and it was regulars, the same people would come back all the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, really, really enjoyed enjoyed those years. So yeah, we we got into the old tech house scene uh, for a few years, and then we still, you know, still do nights right now actually. So still sticking to vinyl. <laughs> you at the the FT still in? 
No, no, no. That that just that was just for a couple of years, and then then I moved to um, uh, um, Associate Newspapers, and I worked for uh, Metro, the Evening Standard, and and the Daily Mail for about eight years, and then then I moved into the agency side. So really, for the past twelve or something years, I've been on agency side doing brand and marketing for loads loads of different brands. Yeah. And when did the uh, when did you decide to do your novel? Well, that that was um, it was during uh, lockdown, so I'd just been furloughed, um, and I've had this story in my head, you know, since I've come back from Dubai, but never, never had the chance or focus to really, you know, sit down. And uh, I don't really know where to start. And then I was following. Um, uh, DJ Dribbler, you know, Harry's Kebabs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Russ, and um, and he's from Aberdeen. And we got a mutual friend because this is where it all connects. So when I was talking about Fever earlier, Elvis, the DJ, Ian Pritchard, knows Russ um, really well. So I kind of reached out to Russ, you know, in Aberdeen and said, oh, any advice I'm thinking of writing a book? And uh, he just gave us, you know, the best advice ever and I kind of stuck to it and uh, before I knew it I'd managed to write you know a first first draft of a manuscript um, so he's been great he really gave us you know the best advice throughout it and introduced me to an editor as well another, another DJ guy who's based out of Ibiza called Mike Boerman I don't know if you know him do you know Mike? I know the uh, name yeah he produces quite a bit um, he's been out there for a few years but he's also like a books editor as well so he kind of edited the book you know, for me. Um, so yeah, so that that's kind of you know how it happened, and then then pitched it into into Dean Dean Kavanagh, which again is a a strange uh, backstory to that because Dean Dean Kavanagh uh, has fallen on Instagram just because of his love of music. Didn't really know who he was, and we were just kind of sharing tracks and music during COVID and lockdown and that, liking each other's music. And then I discovered that he used to be the editor of um, the Herb Garden, which was like a, a Leeds Bradford fanzine. And back in the day when I was hanging out in Leeds, that was a fanzine that I used to pitch my uh, Scottish club guide to because I knew someone that worked there. But I never met Dean. And he was, you know, 20 odd years later, started connecting to him on that. And then he said, uh, yeah, I'll introduce you to this guy, Matteo was a publisher of uh, Zanny uh, books. So he kind of hooked us up with Matteo. Matteo read the first uh, manuscript and he really liked it. And he, he said, let's do it. So it came out under Zanny, yeah, just over a year ago. I think it was last last April. What, what was the advice that Russ gave you? Yeah, I thought you might ask that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he gave the best advice. It was really simple. Uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a true Scottish Aberdonian accent, he said, keep your head down and spew it all out. That's what he said. He said, don't be one of these writers that keeps going back, trying to perfect, you know, every word, every paragraph, and you're not quite sure about that. He says, you've got to keep going forward to see if you've actually got a story to tell. He said, you can come back and do all the editing and perfecting later, but just spew it out, he kept saying. Spew it out, get it out, and see if you've got a story. So that's what I did. I just kept going head down, head down, not looking back much and just seeing how far I could take it. 
So good advice. Yeah, I, I, before Pure started, there was a night called UFO at, ven right. at the venue, which Russ was DJing at. And uh, me and Craig Smith, I did think, think from memory, did the first one on the Sunday night. I was doing the Colin Studios as well, further down the road. And I remember it being a bit sparse on numbers, uh, but you know the, the venue wasn't it wasn't really renowned as a house music venue at that point. I think it was pure really that that took the uh, the 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 baton. Yeah, and, uh, you know, gave gave Edinburgh quite a lot of uh, many years of pure and uh, associated nights. You know, I yeah, think yeah. I'd moved away by that point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you kind of like you you. You drafted the book. The editor did his version. Yeah. You gave it to Matteo. How yeah. did he set about selling it then? Uh, <laughs> uh, how did we set about selling it? Well, yeah. Um, basically, it's, it's it's printed, you know, through Amazon Publishing. So oh. they've got that, you know, which has been great for independent publishers. Yeah. So you don't have that overhead of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books that you're buying yeah. up front. It's print on yeah. demand with Amazon. So I think Amazon's really changed the publishing industry. Yeah. And it's given a lot more in opportunity for independent writers and publishers. Um, so, yeah, so so it, it's, it's published, uh, you know, on, on Amazon um, and, you know, supported by Matteo and, and, and Zani. So it's yeah. quite, quite uh, you know, I feel quite, you know, lucky and humbled, you know, to be in amongst the likes of Matteo and and Dean and and as you, you know, Matteo's brother Paolo was written for for Zani as well, and and Dean and well, Irvin Welsh, you know, have done a book under Zani. Um, so yeah, it's um, yeah, it's, it feels pretty special to be you know part of that that group. Um, so I'm always kind of keen to kind of yeah picking up advice and tips from from those those guys as and when because these guys have been doing it for a lot longer I, mean, I think the first time i heard about it was probably because you gave yogi a copy that's right yeah yeah that was before it was even printed that yeah. was me going down to the local photocopiers <laughs> and then and printing off you know with, well with a local printer he, he did a, a better job than that than me but it was kind of ring bound you know uh, yeah. the little plastic cover on it and I sent that up to Yogi's remote place at the top of a mountain in Scotland somewhere yeah <laughs> I see yeah, he's in a he's in a barn he lives in a barn <laughs> in the middle of nowhere I always laugh at his uh, videos and photos when he goes on about how remote it is you know when there's tractors passing him by and he's trying to walk home from somewhere because the bus hasn't turned up the one bus a week you know <laughs> Yeah, um, nice. yeah, he started reading it and he, he loved it. I mean, he, he was texting me, you know, just, uh, you know, about 20, 30 pages in. And then he would text me again, you know, 100 pages in and then text me again, 200 pages in. Yeah, he really enjoyed it. Uh, so it's great to have, you know, Yogi, you know, uh, behind it and supporting it. And then, you know, he shared it on Instagram as well, which was great. And, and Russ started talking about it and uh and dean as well so it's just been you know building since then i kind of compare it to those out you know early house days when you release a white record you know a limited little run it's under the counter not quite sure how it's going to go hand it out yeah. to a few people 
starts bubbling away itself and see where it goes, you know. Um, so that's that's how I see it. It's still very much, you know, under the radar, but it's getting a lot of love and support from yeah, a good group of people. Um, so so long as people keep spreading the word if they like it, tell the next person and and see, you know, where it can go. But for legal reasons, none of these stories in the book are true. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. It's all inspired, <laughs> inspired uh, on some true stories. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's I compare it to, you know, those hundreds and thousands of sprinkles that you put on cakes. Imagine if you've got one of those little jars of hundreds and thousands and it's mixed up of, you know, truth and fiction or fact and fiction. It's pretty much every... Every line, every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter, I've just gone like that with hundreds and thousands. Um, because, yeah, I've used that experience of those times in Dubai to inspire, you know, fictionalized stories to kind of take it to the next level. Um, and, and, you know, and I write it to entertain as well. You know, it's yes. deliberately written, fast-paced, entertaining, loads of highs, and then some, you know, um, you know, lemon juice in the eye, whatever, that people weren't quite expecting this bit. Shake it around a bit. Um, yeah, and it's... People People seem to like it, which is, which is yeah. nice. But it, it, how, how did you structure it then? Because it, everybody has their own different way of writing a book. Some can just go flat out and just put all the words onto on, onto paper and then or some will have it structured militant. Yeah, you know? I can't do structured. <laughs> I, <laughs> I kind of, you know, the ideas are always going round in my head and then when the ideas for a character or plot line are quite formed in my head, I've got to reach out and write it down on a bit of paper or I'm on my phone, quickly get the note. Um, bit out on my phone and put it in in notes and then come back to it and then sit down in front of the keyboard and start referring to the note and then writing it up but a lot of the ideas come when I'm writing you know, how I'm developing the character and the um, and the plot line I also did a lot of research as well because I don't you know I don't want to give too much away but you know I reached out to some of the um charitable organizations that deal with expats who get arrested abroad to find out to read you know real life stories about you know banged up abroad basically yeah and people that have been unfairly charged whether you know it's in the middle east or asia and you know the harrowing stories and what these people have gone through and how they've been set up and and there's a lot of that it's in the press as well you read about these stories almost every week you know someone someone arrested for for doing something quite innocent you'd think in the middle east um so you know that that part of the research also comes into the to the writing and then and then you just kind of remember stories whether it's stories from dubai or whether it's stories with your pals when you were going out clubbing in scotland or london and again you take that for inspiration and you mix it around and, and see you know what comes out the other end so when the, yeah. the the book finishes, leaving you with the the notion that there's a second book coming. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm working on the second book. <laughs> okay. 
Definitely. Yeah, I'm enjoying writing the second book. Um, so there's definitely a second book to come out. Uh, it's kind of paused a bit at the moment because there's got a lot of focus on the fringe. So we've we've adapted the book for stage and uh, performing at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this year. Um, and that's in August. So once once the fringe is finished, then I can get back to to finishing off the second book. That that yeah. was uh, the next bit I was going to talk about. How how did the uh, the the play come about? And from from memory, you you you've based that on six scenes. Is that right? Well, yeah. So that came about. I was I was lucky again. Um, there was a, a script writer called Sarah Michelle Durant contacted me not long after the book came out, said she had read it, loved it, um, and she's got a vision for how this could appear on screen as a script writer, um, and would would I be interested in talking about it? Um, so, yeah, I said, yeah, you know, let's have a chat. So over the past, you know, for about six, seven months, we were talking about that. She was... Uh, talking about ideas for a, a screenplay. Um, and then I saw the opportunity come up with Edinburgh Fringe and I pitched that into one of the venues at Edinburgh Fringe uh, for a stage adaptation of the book. And they said, yeah, it sounds really, really good story, really interesting. So I went back to her and I went, I've been accepted this venue for the Edinburgh Fringe. Would you be up for doing a stage adaptation rather than, you know, screenplay? And she said, "Yeah, let's do it." So, she's now writing the um, the uh, the script for the stage ad adaptation, uh, which is great. Um, and we're casting um, actors, auditioning them at the moment. Uh, um, and then it's going to run for yeah six nights over six days. So it's six performances, six nights uh, from August the fourteenth to the nineteenth. And we've got a number of 90s, uh, big name 90s DJs that are curating music for each each night. So a, a different person for each night. Um, so the ones that I can mention so far is, is Yogi Houghton, um, is curating music for one night. Um, Lisa Lashes is doing one night. And uh, Ross, DJ Dribbler, is doing one night. There's three others um, that will be doing three nights, but just haven't announced them yet. <laughs> but they're going to be announced very soon. So that's quite... Are you, you're going to be based up in Edinburgh then when, when that's on? Yeah, yeah. But I've got a few days beforehand um, to do, like, you know, technical rehearsals and doing some marketing, and PR, um and then, yeah, the closing nights on Saturday the 19th. And most importantly, organising an after-show party on the closing night. So that's the other thing I'm organising at a bar in Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah. So one of the questions is, uh, how come you chose uh, Tottenham to be your English team? <laughs> What's the affinity between Aberdeen and Tottenham? Well, do you know, I mean, a lot of people obviously ask me that, certainly down down here. But I started supporting Tottenham when I was about 14, 15, just like as a bunch of pals in the classroom 
mates chatting about football. Um, you know, one of my pals was like Man United. I think another one was like Liverpool. Um, and at that time, it was not long after Aberdeen had sold Stevie Archibald to Tottenham Hotspur. So, you know, he'd been a big name in Aberdeen and then go to Tottenham. So there was already a bit of a affinity between Aberdeen to Tottenham, you know, fans seeing how he's getting on down south and at Tottenham. And in that kind of mid-80s to late-80s, Tottenham were doing a lot better than they are nowadays. You know? <laughs> they were actually winning trophies <laughs> and in cup finals. <laughs> so as a, as a teenager, I was seeing that. Um, and that started to, you know, influence me. And I stuck with Spurs as my as my second team, as it was, you know, then, uh, ever ever since, since I've been, you know, 14, 15. But since I left Aberdeen in 96 and coming to London in 98, I've gone to see Tottenham every season since 1998. Uh, um, so I've seen Spurs play more now than Aberdeen. Um so, I mean, Aberdeen will still be my home team and where, you know, my, my heart lies with Aberdeen, but, you know, passionate about Spurs and and go go all the time. And a lot of Aberdeen fans are, you know, passionate, you know, Spurs fans as well. There seems to be a, there's definitely a connection between the two that I think stems from that Stevie Archibald um, period. And then there's obviously a bit of the, the terrace and casual culture as well, because, you know, you've got Rangers and West Ham or... Chelsea and that uh, Aberdeen and Tottenham, I think, over the years have always kind of stood shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. Um, so that's where it comes from. I don't think my son thanks me for the Tottenham, being a Tottenham fan. Not, not at the moment, anyway. Uh, <laughs> You've got a lovely stadium. We got, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we're very good at putting on uh, concerts. And uh, we've got a Formula One go karting track underneath, apparently, <laughs> I haven't seen yet. Um. Yeah, don't get me started though. On top of it, it's just uh, <laughs> tough times at the moment. Um, but we still go. <laughs> Ryan Battles, thank you very much for your time. That's great. Really enjoyed it.